right. Thank you, Dave, and thank you for that good singing. And just a Mother's Day greeting once again to all of you. Uh, my mother has been with the Lord now some 14 years almost. And uh, I told her, I got the opportunity to tell her just a few days before she died that I'm in the ministry because of her. Uh, not, you know, if dad's listening to this on the Internet or whatever, not to take anything away from pop, but, but mom's influence was, it was clearly the, the direction for me and, and her example as well. I always looked up to her, and, uh, and I was thankful to the Lord I got a chance to tell her before uh, she went to be with the Lord. And, and, of course, she responded to it in a very humble way, which I would expect her to do, but I wouldn't let her get clear of it. And, and I said, you're going to share in the rewards in the coming day. Just want to encourage you, sisters, uh, as Brother Dave said, and rightly so, uh, in our day, oftentimes the role of women uh, certainly is very confusing from our culture. And, and because the Bible has specified male leadership in the church, that doesn't diminish the role of the sisters in any way. It's just a different function, a different role, a different responsibility. And I would submit this to you, and I've said it from this pulpit before. I believe, in teaching First Timothy. But you sisters, more than the men, more than anyone else, you sisters are responsible for training up the next generation of Christians. You know where I'm getting that from? The sisters, have a, they're uniquely made by the Lord to help in raising children, as David said in First Timothy chapter 2. He, the Lord has equipped you in a special way, and, and we know from science and from psychology that the personality of the child is formed by the age of seven, and oftentimes by the age of nine or ten, the entire life direction of that child is pretty well determined. And who has been the main influence those nine or ten years at the beginning? It was women. Whether, if, whether it was a mother or if you maybe didn't have a mother that was there for you, maybe it was an older sister or it was someone in the meeting that taught Sunday school to you or vacation Bible school and all these opportunities. So even if some of the sisters who are married do not get the opportunity to raise children themselves, they can be involved in the local church in raising up the children, the next generation, which, as I say, is an enormous responsibility. If we have a generation coming behind us that is really far away from walking with God and not serving God, it's you sisters that has been the primary influence on them. So you see what I mean? You have a big responsibility. And we should be praying for you and encouraging you and thanking God for you. Well, we're going to come now into a study of the book of Ephesians. And we're going to shift really from emphasis on motherhood to emphasis on fatherhood. I suppose it would have been better to start this series on Father's Day. Because we're going to look at the father of all glory here in chapter 1 in the first 14 verses. And let's read them together. I'm going to focus particularly this morning on verses 3 to 14 which in the Greek, in the original, are all one sentence. It's all one sentence with commas and semicolons in there but to divide it up. But it's all one continuous thought in the mind of the apostle, and he is inspired by God, so it's the mind of God. So let's read it together. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession <laughs> to the praise of his glory. That's a mouthful. But it's very important that we leave today a little further along in our understanding of what the Apostle is trying to communicate to us here. Because in this Ephesians letter, and we'll be focusing on this all during the week as we study it, it's a unique letter in several respects, right? It's the only letter in the, of the Apostle Paul or any of the epistles that has extended prayers given in it, two of them. And, and so, therefore, as we see the prayer of the Apostle Paul for these Ephesian Christians, we see then Jesus Christ's prayer for you and me. That's how we should interpret that. Now, the Ephesian Christians, Paul was very close to. We know from the book of Acts, he spent three whole years there, probably from roughly 52 to 55 A.D., came back through there in 58 A.D. on his way to Pentecost there in Jerusalem where he took the gift, where he was arrested. And then in 61 A.D., writes this letter from being imprisoned in Rome. So this is a group that he had a lot of influence 
on them. The book of Acts also tells us they met day and night in the school of Tyrannus for some two and a half years. Can you imagine seminary training like that from the Apostle Paul himself? He put a lot into these people. This letter, the Ephesians letter, as well as 1st and 2nd Timothy is 1st and 2nd Timothy were written to Timothy, but indirectly to the Ephesians, because that's where Timothy was ministering when those letters were written. And then we have a letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 as well, don't we? Ephesus was a major commercial hub in Asia Minor in that day, modern day Turkey, on the Aegean coast, on the Aegean Sea. I've walked the streets of ancient Ephesus there, and it's still, they've re reconstructed much of the ancient city. It was destroyed many years ago by an earthquake, but they've come in, and the uh, Turkish government has reconstructed much of the city, and you get an impression that it was a typical Roman city of the first century. It had all of the cultural things that the Romans brought in, a very sophisticated city. Much like we would think of maybe a Miami or a Houston or a Chicago. And Paul had come there and a church had been planted there and he was enabled by God to really build them up. A third characteristic we see about the Ephesian letter, which we don't see in any of the other epistles, is an extended section on spiritual warfare in chapter 6, don't we? One of the most extended sections we have. And as we study a letter like this, we ask ourselves, why? Why did the Apostle Paul, particularly to the Ephesians, move into this whole realm? In fact, why does he even write this letter from the standpoint of eternity past like he does? We read in the book of Acts chapter 19, there was an enormous degree of witchcraft, magic arts, spiritism, interest in the supernatural realm of the demonic world in Ephesus. And that kind of helps us understand a little bit why Paul comes from the angle he does. And why spiritual warfare and Satan's devices are brought out so clearly in chapter 6. It would fit with our culture today, wouldn't it? When you read in Acts chapter 19 that when they collected the books on magic arts and witchcraft and burned them in a big bonfire, it amounted to, in cost, the books in cost, in our dollars, five million dollars. <laughs> Can you imagine five million dollars of books on sorcery, witchcraft, evil, advancement in the evil world of the underworld? And that's where they were when the Lord came in to save them. And the Lord came in with the gospel and people were converted. They put all that aside. You remember there was one man there that overcame seven Jewish exorcists. The Jewish exorcists were not believers. They were imitating the Apostle Paul. They come in to, to exorcise, to cast out a demon out of a man who turned out, I think he had more, I think he had seven demons, didn't he? And they come in there. And what happens? Do they exorcise the demon? No, the demon-possessed man exorcises himself on them. 
beats them up and sends them away humiliated. He says to them, the demon does, through the man, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Does Satan know who you are this morning? If you're a child of God, he knows who you are too. And that's where the spiritual conflict comes in. We read in Acts chapter 19 as well, there was a lot of miracle work done by the Apostle Paul as the gospel came in. God had to affirm to these Ephesians that the Apostle Paul's message of salvation was true, real, not like what they were getting from the witches and the sorcerers. Because there was supernatural work done by them as well, just like there is today. Still, a lot of the people you work with you realize it's on the rise in this country and in other parts of the world? That interest in the occult again? And many people that we are concerned about, you and I, are far along into that and they don't even realize the dangers they are in. And that's why I don't, I'm not ashamed to proclaim Jesus Christ. Are you? Are you ashamed of him? I had someone tell me recently, a professing Christian, you mean when I get to heaven, I'm only I'm going to see Jesus face to I'm only going to see Jesus. I said, only Jesus, <laughs> only Jesus. Why do you say it like that? Does, is that all he means to you? You realize his face was marred more than any man for you. Not for himself, for you. And you're only going to see him. That's all he means to you. He's just another said Arthur Buddha or another Allah. Or, or another great philosopher? No, he's God. Jesus is Jehovah. He is God. And it may come in our lifetime, in this country, when we are going to be put in a place where are we going to be willing to die for that name? The early Christians were willing to die for that name. They were thrown to lions in the arena. All they had to do was deny that Jesus is Lord. That's all they had to do. And they wouldn't do it. All they had to do was just say, oh, he's a great teacher. That they would have been spared the lions. No, they said, Jesus is God. And if he isn't God, you're still in your sins. And I am too. Amen? If he isn't God, then his death on the cross is not efficacious and it will not forgive us for our, for our sins, as Paul says here. And we're still lost. So it's very important. God in his holiness and his perfect righteousness demands a perfect sacrifice. And apart from the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sins. None. There any other place to turn. Like Peter told the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel in the first century. Where else are we going to turn? There's no other name. Under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. There is no other name but Jesus. Thank you. Little emphasis. There's no other name. And, and I'm not ashamed... To proclaim him. Are you? 
And when I see him face to face, I'm not going to be ashamed to proclaim him. And I'm not going to be discontent with seeing his glory. I'm going to be humbled, awed, excited. <laughs> and I'll probably be lifting my hands and jumping around as well as being on my knees. Seeing him. Because he died for me. Nobody else did. Nobody else could. Now I want to come away with as we think of, you know, you try to take in Bible study, we try to take a, a section like verse 3 to 14 here, chapter 1, which, which is so full of a lot of big theological words, right? And good Bible study is to try to distill that into something that we can really get our minds around, okay? So the emphasis here, we see the work of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead are mentioned in this praise Him, which is what it is. Verses 3 to 14 is a hymn of praise. And it's particularly praise to the glory of His grace. You see in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. So what is He praising God for? Thank you, His glory. And in the first one is to the grace associated with that glory. Do you realize it glorifies God to deal with sinners like you and me according to grace instead of judgment? Grace means unmerited favor. Grace means He's not giving you and me what we deserve. What do we deserve? Eternal torment. Separated from God in darkness forever and ever. That's what we deserve. And He's not giving us that if we're trusting in Jesus Christ. And that's what grace means. But God wants us to understand, those of us who are believers... In Jesus Christ, he wants us to understand what he did to us back when we were saved. What he's doing in us now and what he wants to do and plans to do in the future. In other words, he's giving us his plan, the overarching plan of our salvation from conversion to sanctification to glorification the whole picture god sees everything right we see things in space and time but god is outside of space and time he sees the whole eternal picture from beginning to end but there is no beginning and there is no end when we're talking about eternity those are terms we have to use because we can't relate to that we can't relate to eternity but this is what he's teaching us here. And with the first, from verses 3 through 6, the emphasis is on the work of the Father in bringing us into sonship. Okay, so if you want to put it with one word, adoption 
or sonship, S-O-N, sonship, or family. This is Mother's Day. Maybe that one fits too. In other words, God wants to make us part of his family again. Something we lost in Adam and Eve in the fall, in the garden, God wants to restore, and he's going to restore it in a far bigger way than what Adam and Eve ever had in the Garden of Eden. And God planned this in eternity past. God wasn't fooled when Adam and Eve failed. Is that a relief to you? <laughs> God, that, God wasn't surprised by that. God wasn't fooled when Satan inspired Judas and then the religious leaders of Israel to crucify his son. That didn't surprise God. Right? God knew that. Now, I don't believe God is the author of evil, like some brethren want to say, but I believe that God permitted evil. The Bible's clear in Romans 5. Who's the author of evil? Who's the author of sin? Man is. Through Adam, sin came into the world, and through sin came death. So let's put the credit where it belongs. Humanity. We rebelled against God and suffered the consequences of that. See? Physical death. Spiritual death. Separation from God. But God wasn't fooled. And, and then... What he's going to bring out in Ephesians so strongly, and which most of Christendom today totally misses this. Most of Christendom totally misses what God's plan is for the church. How many people that you talk to and work with think the church is a building? How many think, think it's a building? Right? I go to church on Sunday. Well, you go to church... Well, what is that? Well, it's a building on 4th Street. I go to this building and we worship. Well, what are you worshiping? And how are you worshiping? On what basis are you worshiping? And who are you worshiping? You say, well, I'm not sure. Well, are you not sure because you don't care? Or are you not sure because you don't study and read your Bible? Or are you not sure because... You study and read your Bible, and you don't want to do what it says. <laughs> Which one is it? Right? It's got to be one of those. Because the Lord tells us very clearly in Ephesians and in other places what His plan is today. And His plan for today is a group of people that He calls the church. So, the church is not a building the church is not an organization. The church is an organism. If you want to use terminology like that, it's the body of Christ on earth. It is a collection of people, born again, spirit-sealed people. 
And so I'm not surprised, and you won't be either, that the main emphasis when he gets to chapter 4 of Ephesians, the main emphasis from chapter 4 through 6 is going to be on human relationships. Does that surprise you? Because the glory of God in the church is going to be manifested in how you and I relate to one another. And so human relationship in the church is very important to God. Is it important to you? Is it important to me? See, one of the things that separates us from the animal kingdom are fellow six-dayers. Because they were created on the sixth day like we were, but we're different from the animals. Will most of you agree with that? Maybe a few evolutionists in the audience, but, but most of us understand that, that we didn't come from monkeys. We were made in the image and likeness of God. And we were made on the sixth day like the monkeys were, but we were made distinctly different because we have a mind and a conscience and the ability to communicate and the ability to relate to one another. See, the animals can't do that. They have instinct, and they are able to relate to each other on a certain basis that way. But they cannot communicate to one another like human beings do. Would you agree with me on that? Will you give me that much? That's true. You got a pet? Do you relate to your pet in the same way? I know you relate to your pet. I'm not diminishing that. But do you relate to your pet in the same way you relate to your mom? Do you? No. It's different, right? And God wants us to know and understand with these minds and intellects and souls that he's given us. He wants us to understand what he is doing in the world today. What he did when he saved us and what he wants to still do through us in the world today in reaching a lost humanity. See, it's God's idea to create a new humanity. One new man. That's what he says in chapter 2 in, in verse uh, 15. To create in himself one new man. One. In other words, the old man, Adam fell. We were born into this world with his old nature. And even though we're born again in Christ, we still have Adam's old nature in us, don't we? According to Romans chapter 6 and other places. But we're not under the old man's dominion anymore. That makes me want to shout praise because I used to be under his dominion and whatever that old man in me told me to do, I had to do it. I couldn't say the devil made me do it. It was the old man in me that made me do it. The devil may have influenced him, but it was the old man in me and in you that made you do it. But as new creatures in Jesus Christ, he is creating us anew in the image of of Jesus Christ, not the image of Adam. There's a huge difference. 
And the only way you and I are going to enter into that is if we understand it first. You say, well, God could snap his fingers and just make us like that and make us understand it just like that, couldn't he? Yes, he could. Oh, yes, he could. God can do anything he wants to. He he is omnipotent, all-powerful. He can do anything he wants to. But he has chosen not to do it that way. He has chosen to draw us by his spirit, using the word of God, informing our understanding. And only what we enter into in our understanding will we be in our actions. Right? As a man thinks in his head, so he is. Proverbs 23, 7. You are what you think about. And that's why we emphasize it's so important to be careful what you watch, what you listen to, what you read, what you expose your precious mind to. Dave and I were talking yesterday about a friend he knew back in the old days. And I had a few of them. That, that had to be put in a mental institute when they were teenagers because of drugs. They so warped their mind. Now, I don't know about his friend, but my friend, I mean, I knew him. We played football together on the team. He's a great guy. He didn't, I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking out of school. I, don't, I didn't ask him this. I didn't interview him. But I would, I would be sure to, to say that he didn't, Start doing those drugs with the, mind, with the idea in mind, I want to end up in that mental institute. He didn't do it for that purpose. He was curious. And we all were. Teenagers are. That's part of the whole growth process. And hopefully we learn a little bit more as we move into adulthood, but some of us don't. And we still stay curious and curious about evil as well as good. And he messed around with the wrong thing. Now, I don't know if it was contaminated or what, but it blew his mind. And, and they, the guys in the white coats came and took him away. And we never heard from him again. And I still haven't heard from him. And I don't know where he is. He's my age. And it bothers me. The mind is a terrible thing to waste, isn't it? What a precious tool it is that God has given us. But you, right now, are either wasting yours or building it up according to your own priorities. It's up to you and me. We're responsible, see. So God wants us to understand. And that's part of what Paul's prayer in the second half of chapter 1, that's his primary prayer request, is that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to know the truth of what God wants to do in us, through us, to his glory. It starts with adoption. God had a plan in eternity past that everyone who trusted in Jesus Christ, his son, would be born again and placed by the spirit of God into this organism, this body that he calls the church. You'll say that at the end of chapter one. You can look at that in verse 22 and 23. It was God's plan. And God chose those people to be in him. Now, the in him, you notice at the end of, in verse 4, right after he chose us, 
You notice the in him modifies the choosing. He chose us in him. In him is referring to who? It's referring to Jesus Christ in verse 3. By the way, that emphasis on being in Christ or in him is mentioned nine times in these verses of 3 to 14. So that tells us a little bit what the emphasis is, isn't it? Being in Christ. Either in Christ or you're out of him. And if you're in him, these blessings accrue to you. You find out that you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, just like every other believer is. And you were chosen for what? That we should be holy and blameless before him in love, verse 4. And that we would be predestined, that is, marked out beforehand to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, to God. In other words, that we would be brought into by adoption because we don't have any rights on this. Man threw out his rights in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? Adam forsook the right. We don't have any rights to be sons. We have to be adopted in. But God says, when you trust in Jesus Christ, my son, I've adopted you. You're my child now. Sons and daughters of the living God. He'll say in 2 Corinthians 6, that's who you are. We suffer in this world from an identity crisis, don't we? We hear some of our young people say, well, I just have an identity crisis. I don't understand who I am. And that's a sad thing for someone who's lost. We kind of expect it. But for a born-again Christian to still have an identity crisis, then we have missed out on discipleship somewhere with that person, haven't we? Because that's what Paul is emphasizing here. Know who you are first. Before he gets into be who you are, he says, know who you are first. Because you'll never be who you are if you don't know who you are. It starts with understanding who we are. You're a child of God. You say, well, I could never have made myself that. That's correct. That's biblical. I could never have bought that. I mean, I could lay out all kinds of money. Could I ever buy that? No. Without cost. Priceless. You can never purchase it. And as you were, and I was, before we were saved, we were destined to a lost eternity in hell with Satan, and we deserved it. Do you believe that? You say, well, no, I, I went to church when I was four years old on. That doesn't matter. You can be born in the garage. That doesn't make you a car, Billy Graham says, right? Just going to a church building or going to VBS or going to camp and putting a stick in the campfire, that doesn't make you born again. It's what you believe in your heart. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your only Savior and that you can't save yourself and that you are lost as a sinner apart from Him? Do you believe that? Does that offend you? I mean, some of you looked a little offended when I said that you were a sinner lost, headed to a lost eternity. You, you kind of look like this. You know what that tells me? You don't understand the gospel yet. Yet. And you're probably still lost. Because if you knew you were a sinner and that you couldn't save yourself by all the kinds of religion you could come up with, 
and that you were lost and helpless and undone and you needed a Savior. If you didn't understand that, you've got to understand that to be saved, don't you? But if you do understand that, well, and some of you were because I saw you smiling. I don't know how you can understand that and not be smiling. To know that somebody died for you. And it turned out it was God. Does that make you happy? Does that make you feel significant? You know, we talk about three basic needs of humanity. Significance, security, and knowing that we're loved. And all three of those things are true right here in these verses 3 through 6 of Ephesians 1. Do you realize that freedom from guilt of sin, that's what forgiveness of sins means in verse 7, freedom from guilt of sin, do you know what a bondage guilt brings human beings into? Guilt is a terrible bondage. And it will crush people if they stay in that kind of position. But you don't have to if you're here this morning and you understand you're a guilty sinner before a holy God. You can know through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son, you can know it today, this morning, that you're adopted as sons now. And being adopted as sons, we have certain rights. We're brought into the family of God. We have an inheritance. He's going to talk about that later in the chapter, isn't he? We have a role, responsibility. We have a function. We were singing, if you're a plumber, you do it for the Lord. We have a work to do. All of us do. Every one of us who's a child of God. And you can only do what he's planned for you. I can't do your work. You can't do mine because each one of us is unique. Each one of us has a purpose and a function. We also have responsibilities, too, that go with that sonship. And you'll get into that in chapters 4 through 6. But first, in chapters 1 through 3, he just wants to focus on who we are. And he has to pray for enlightenment to Christians. These Ephesians are Christians, and he has to pray that they be enlightened on this, which tells us what? That this doesn't happen the moment we're saved, our understanding of who we are. It's a process that takes time. But do you have a teachable spirit? Do you want to know? Are you open to the Lord teaching you this? That's what he prays, that, that you would have a spirit of understanding, see, which means a teachable spirit, a desire to want to know. Do you have that as a Christian here this morning? Well, that's what Paul is wanting to do in this letter. He's going to expand upon the role of us as children in the family of God. And then in verse 7 down through verse 14, I won't get a chance to elaborate on that this morning, but there he focuses on our role and function in the church of the living God, which God planned also in eternity past. And Jesus Christ is the head of that body of people, and it is a body of people which will glorify God for all eternity. So we hope that your appetite's whetted a little bit this morning. <laughs> Paul would hope that. Jesus Christ wants that. 
And we want that for each other, don't we? The first thing to remember is, if you're a child of God through faith in Christ, you've been brought into the rights of sonship. He's going to elaborate on that. The whole idea of access to the Father in prayer, anytime, place. The whole realm of worship, like no Old Testament saint was ever able to do, even though David comes really close to it and what our brother read earlier, the way we can worship God because we understand. We have the picture now. David didn't have it all then, see. And I have to, I wonder, I ask myself this, I wonder, the Old Testament saints, when we see them, I mean, David himself, he's going to wonder, he says, you had the indwelling Holy Spirit, which I didn't have. The Holy Spirit came upon me to be king, but you had the indwelling Holy Spirit. You had the New Testament. You were sealed in the blood of Christ, the new covenant. Christ had come. You had got to read about that. You read about in the book of Revelation, his return. What did you do with it? He's going to ask, what did you do with it? And I hope we won't have to say, well, I just worked my nine to five job and waited for retirement. I hope we won't have to say that. I hope you don't have to say that. I hope I don't either. This is an enormous privilege what he's brought us into. Don't let anyone minimize it for you. So, Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the grace that you have displayed towards us. Needy sinners, lost people. And, Lord, we thank you that you have now, by your grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone, brought us into a position of sonship. Sons and daughters of the living God. No more important relationship in the whole earth than that. And we thank you for that confidence, the security it gives us, the significance. We talk about self-worth. We don't need self-worth. We need Christ's worth. And he has demonstrated his desire and how much he loves us on the cross of Calvary. Thank you for him. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, we're all praying. If there's someone here this morning that doesn't know Christ as his or her personal Savior, we pray you would help them to see the light of the glory of the gospel and trust in Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. While there's still time to trust in him. Be with us as we go on this afternoon and as we come back. Under your hand and guidance this evening, by the will of the Lord, we give you thanks. In the Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen.